Thank you all. That song has been on repeat in our house um, for the last week. In fact, a number of the songs that were done at the Christmas concert last Sunday night have been on repeat uh, at our house this week. Um, so if you missed it last Sunday night, well, you can't really celebrate Christmas then. So I'm just kidding. No, it was great. Thank you to our musicians for, uh, for putting that together. Uh, open your Bibles up to Mark 13 this morning. Mark 13. Most of you know this passage um, is looking toward the future. End of the world apocalyptic predictions. Maybe you've heard an end of the world apocalyptic prediction before, but those type of predictions have a long and shady history. People have been anticipating and predicting the end of the world since before the time of Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. People are always expecting the world to end very soon. The Romans believed that the city of Rome would be destroyed 120 years after its founding in 634 BC. Why did they believe it would be destroyed 120 years after its founding? Because they believed that the founder of Rome, a man named Romulus, had seen 12 eagles. Each of them represented 10 years, thus 120 years. And so the city would last 120 years and then be destroyed. Of course, once Jesus came onto the scene, these sort of predictions only got amped up. One guy named Martin of Tours, someone you've probably not heard of recently, but he predicted that the world would end in 400 AD. And he said this about that prediction. There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. He's firmly established already in his early years, and he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. Three different people predicted that the year 500 would bring the end of the world, and somehow they believed that based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. There was a pope named Innocent III, and he predicted that the world would end in the year 1284, 666 years after the rise of Islam. I see what you did there. 666 after the rise of Islam. Ah. In the early 1500s, there was a group of London astrologers who predicted that a flood would begin in London in 1524 and would hasten the end of the world. And as a result of their predictions, 20,000 people in London fled the city to higher ground. And I didn't realize this, but our boy Christopher Columbus wrote a little book called The Book of Prophecies, and he predicted the end of the world in 1656. Now, there's been quite a few of these predictions, and sometimes when people know these predictions have failed, things get a little stale, so you've got to add some spunk to your prediction. In 1806, in England, a hen began laying eggs with the phrase, Christ is coming on the eggs. Eventually, it was discovered that Mary Bateman, the owner of the eggs, had been writing on the eggs with a corrosive ink in order to make the writing stay on there, and then she'd been taking the eggs and reinserting them from whence they came. 
in order to make these apocalyptic predictions seem more viable. Now, it's not like our generation has been free from apocalyptic predictions. Anybody ever heard of this book? 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return by 1988. It's a catchy title. It's written by a guy named Edgar, poor Edgar. Things didn't go quite as he had planned. Maybe you haven't heard of that, but some of you no doubt will have seen these signs a few years ago. Judgment Day is coming on May 21st, 2011. You can't read all the details there, but a guy named Harold Camping who has an entire group of radio stations, or had, he's passed away since then, but he did all these calculations and predicted that the world would end on May 21st, 2011, and he promoted this on his radio stations, familyradio.com, and they even bought billboards like this one. We saw these billboards in Lynchburg when we were living there, and everyone was like, what is going on with this, you know? Well... When it didn't happen on May 21st, 2011, Harold began teaching that it actually had happened and it was a a secret judgment and a secret rapture that had taken place. And if you're not into biblical predictions or numerological predictions of the end of the world, scientists predict that in the year 5 billion, the sun will morph into a different sort of star, a red giant, and swallow the earth, ending all human life. And so the lesson from that for us is we have got to figure out how to get off this planet by the year five billion. Maybe some of you can work on that. Now that's a short history of some of these end of the world apocalyptic predictions, and people have always been fascinated by the future and by the end of the world. Christians love this stuff. We love it. We try to figure out the details of what will happen and when it will happen. Is the Antichrist alive right now? How is America involved in the end times? Will we be here during the Great Tribulation? And Jesus was not silent on topics concerning the future and the end times. But let me encourage you this morning and maybe challenge your thinking a little bit. I think so many Americans miss the main emphasis in the teaching of Jesus on the end times. When we think about eschatology, the study of last things, we tend to think about predicting the details of the future and answering some of those questions that I just asked you. That tends to be what we think about when we think of eschatology. And when Jesus taught about eschatology or when the Bible instructs us on the doctrine of last things, the Bible wants us to consider our lifestyle now in light of the end of the story. How are you living now in light of the fact that Jesus will return and gather his sheep to him and separate the goats to judgment? And that's kind of the main emphasis that I want you to hear in the background of everything we're doing this morning. This is not about the details, and I'm not just trying to avoid the details, (laughs) although they are difficult to navigate. There's no doubt about it, and we'll talk through some of the details of this passage. But the main emphasis, the melodic line, you could say, of Mark 13 is that you and I are to consider how we live now in light of the end of the world. 
That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's concerned for his disciples as they think about the future. So Mark 13, if you're not already there, turn there. But this is the largest block of teaching in the Gospel of Mark. And it does force us to think about the future. There's no doubt about it. But when you read this passage, don't just parachute into Mark 13 and start reading in Mark 13, 1 and sort of siphon this text off from what we've just seen in Mark 11 and 12. Because I think if you do that, you'll miss the emphasis here and you may even get the wrong interpretation of what's going on here. If you've been with us, you know that in Mark 11 and Mark 12, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem during the final week of his life, and he has been in conflict with the temple authorities over what they have been teaching, what they have been doing, and what he teaches about Scripture. And in this, he has attacked them for what they're doing in the temple and in Israel and what they're teaching, and he predicts an end to their power in Israel and an end to the system that they are involved in. I mean, listen to the way he says this in Mark 12 and verse 9. This is the parable of the vineyard owner and the tenants. You remember this? It's very abrupt, very in their face. And they even knew he was talking about them in this parable. But look what he says here, Mark 12, 9. It's on the screen. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so you've already been set up for this sort of expectation to happen at some point in the near future. And so I think in this chapter, he's telling us what will ultimately happen to the temple and to this system that the Jews have been using to exploit people and misunderstanding the Old Testament. And I think he's also, at the same time, going to peek into the much more distant future and talk about his second coming and when the end of all things will be brought together. So let's start. We're going to look at a few verses, and then I'll give you my preaching outline this morning. But let's start in Mark 13 and verse 1. And as he came out of the temple... So Jesus leaves the temple for the last time in the Gospel of Mark, and some people have seen in this almost a little bit of uh, like a bigger picture at what's going on here. Jesus is leaving the temple. He's done with the temple. He's done with what they're doing. He's no longer interested in fighting with them, leaving it to judgment for the last time. The rest of verse, verse 1, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And the sight of the temple would have been awe-inspiring as they walked away from the temple and up the hill through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. This temple was built by Herod, and it really was one of the most impressive structures in the ancient world. Some of the stones that were used to make up the foundation of this temple and to build it were 25 to 30 feet long, and they weighed 100 tons. There was nothing like it in the ancient world. And so as you're walking along, going up the hill toward the Mount of Olives, the sight of this temple, this complex, how massive it was, it would have generated awe and wonder. And so the disciple says this. He notices this and, and praises the temple for, for what it looks like. How does Jesus respond to that? Look at verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so Jesus is clearly addressing the destruction of the temple here. 
He's going to talk about that, and that would have been shocking to the disciples. And so when they get to the Mount of Olives, they've probably been thinking about this response the whole time. The temple's going to be destroyed. Really? Are you serious? And so they ask him a couple more questions to try to get more information out of him. Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately, tell us. And they ask him two questions here. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, those two questions are really important here for understanding the rest of this chapter, all right? They ask him, when will the temple be destroyed? The things you've just talked about in verse 2, when are those things going to happen? And then the second question, I think, is a little bit different than the first one. This second question is focused more on the end of the world. It's focused more on the accomplishment of all things. That's, That's really what they're asking there. Now, in their minds, they probably would have put those two together. They would have thought, well, if the temple is going to be destroyed, surely that's the end of time in some way. That sounds like a pretty apocalyptic event. And so in their minds, they associated those two together, but they are asking two distinct questions here, and it's important for you to understand that because you need to see the way Jesus answers those two questions, and I think he answers them distinct from each other. All right, so this is a tough passage to grasp. Uh, If you read this passage this week, um, it's hard. Uh, It's hard to figure out what's going on here, and uh, I'm happy to discuss with you the interpretation that I'm going to give you of this text this morning later on. Uh, I would love to talk this through uh, and, and try to be good Bereans about this text, okay? But in order to get what Jesus is saying here, I need to give you an outline of the passage so that you can see the flow of thought here, because it's not really linear in some ways. He sort of jumps back and forth between topics, and you need to understand that if you're going to rightly divide this text, okay? So here's here's an outline, and then I'll give you a preaching outline in a minute, all right? So hopefully this isn't too confusing this morning. I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. Uh, But here's the outline, I think, of the rest of Mark 13, okay? So verses 5 through 23, I think Jesus is dealing with the temple destruction that happens. You know this, right? In 70 AD, after Christ dies in about 33 AD, the temple is destroyed. The Romans come into Jerusalem, ransack the temple, raise it to the ground, all right? I think Jesus is dealing with that in verses 5 to 23. Then I think he deals with the second question in verses 24 to 27. He starts talking about the second coming, okay? Then I think he flips back and says, okay, both of these things are going to happen. Now, here's how you prepare for the destruction of the temple in verses 28 to 31, and then here's how you prepare for the second coming in verses 32 to 37, all right? So he kind of goes back and forth, boom, boom. It's like an A, B, A, B in the outline here, okay? So I think that's what he's doing here. Again, I'm happy to discuss that um, you know, later if you would like to, all right? Now, the, the, the thing about this text is everything that he's telling the disciples here is in the future for them. The temple destruction in 78 AD, they didn't know exactly when that would take place. It was in the future for them. Obviously, the second coming is in the future for them. So when Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, it's all about the future events, and he's preparing them for these future events. And so I think that's our takeaway as well. As we look to the future, 
And only one of these is in the future for us. We need to be prepared ethically, morally, spiritually for the future. And I think that's what we learn from this passage here. So we need to think about how we live in light of the future. Direct our gaze toward what's coming. And that's what Jesus is is teaching here. So I'm going to give you four ways to live in light of God's future plans. Four ways to live in light of God's future plans, all right? The first one of these is that section dealing with the temple in verse, verse 5 to 23, and it's be watchful to endure. So I think in this section, Jesus is answering the disciples' first question in verse 4. When will these things be? I think he's telling them here when they're going to be. And he gives them some details, right? There, there are some details here, but overall, he's more concerned with how his disciples are going to respond and how they are going to prepare for these events than about nailing down every specific detail. Notice an emphasis in this passage. Look at verse 5, how he begins. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now look down at the beginning of verse 9. But be on your guard. Now look down at the beginning of verse 23, the last verse in this section. But be on guard. All of those have the same Greek word behind the English words there, even though they're translated a bit differently. It's the same warning. It's the same exhortation. Be watchful. Be on guard. Be prepared for these events that are going to happen in the future. They are to be watchful because things are not going to be easy for them at all. After Jesus dies, after he ascends to the Father, they are going to face incredible difficulties. What are they going to face? Well, look at verses 5 through 8. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. And you can see here, this is the end is not yet. He's not talking about the end of time here. It's not what's going to happen. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. People often see tumultuous events in the world right? It's easy to do this. We see things happening. It feels like the world is spinning out of control, and we think, surely this is the end. Surely Jesus is going to come back soon. Jesus says, no, you cannot read that from the events in the world. You can't know that because war and famine and natural disasters are to be expected in the world in which you live. These events do not indicate the end. That's not even what Jesus is talking about here, I don't think. Besides that aspect of life, there will be difficult things. There will be wars. There will be natural disasters. Besides that, you can expect, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be persecuted for your faith. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But even as this is happening, as you're being persecuted, just know that it's not the end because there's a mission that will be accomplished before 
the end comes. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But here's what you are to do in the midst of that persecution. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Stay faithful, endure, be on your guard, be prepared spiritually for these things. They are going to happen all the time. They're not a sign of the end. The mission will be accomplished, but stay faithful in the midst of these things. And so I think verses 5 to 13, Jesus knew these things would happen before the destruction of the temple, and he knows they're going to continue to happen for you and I today. And so his exhortation is, be faithful in the midst of this, even when you're persecuted, even when you're despised. And so now I think in verse 14, he sort of flips here to the specifics of the temple in 70 AD. Here's what they are to expect. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, I I know there's so much discussion on this. What is this? When does this happen? All of that stuff, okay? Um, I, I think there's probably going to be something like this that happens in the future, but I think what he's talking about here is something that would take place around the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And here's why I think that. Look at how the verse ends. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If he were describing the end of the world, I, I don't think he would limit his focus to Judea. And fleeing to the mountains at the end of the world is not going to do you any good <laughs> because it's a worldwide judgment that's coming. And so I think he's telling them here, look, pay attention. Something awful is going to happen in the temple. And when you see that, you better get out of Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains because judgment is coming on the temple and on the city. And at the end of the world, people won't find safety anywhere. And then he gives them specific instructions for how to get out. Verses 15 to 18. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Those instructions wouldn't matter if it was the end of the world. But I think it's specific to this time frame. And then in verses 19 and 20, he sort of gives this hyperbole to describe just how bad this is going to be when this judgment comes to Jerusalem. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. If it was the end of the world, the never will be wouldn't make sense. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In other words, the destruction is going to happen quickly and efficiently by Rome, and it's not going to extend on into this long war. All of it's going to happen so that these people who fled can be saved. And along with that, look at verses 21 to 23. 
Other things are going to happen along with those events. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The bottom line for Christ's followers is be alert, be ready, so that you can endure. So I think Jesus here is preparing them for this, which would happen in the lifetime of many of them. And this alertness that he's encouraging them to will give them the strength that they need to endure. That's why I think he says in 23, I've told you all things beforehand. And so I think this is a call for us as well, right? When we look to the future, we don't know what's going to happen specifically for us in our lives, but the world will be broken. It will be a difficult place to live. It's going to continue to be that way, and it's a call for us to endure even in the midst of that. And that brings us to our second way to live, anticipate Christ's return, verses 24 to 27. So you can see in verse 24 here, I think he changes gears. He says, but, that's a change in topics, I think, that he's getting at here. In those days, after that tribulation, and then he goes on to describe that, but the events of the temple here, you got to remember, the disciples would have seen these things as together, and they're not disconnected from the end of the world. Now, they happen in a couple thousand years apart, at least, right? You know, the destruction of the temple and then the second coming of Christ, at least a couple thousand years apart, maybe more. But the Bible calls the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, coming what? The latter days, the last days. And so in some way, these events are typical. This is what's going to happen. And they both happen in the latter days. And here there's no indication of how long it will take between verses 23 and 24, between the destruction of the temple and between the last days between the second coming of Christ. We are living in between verses 23 and 24. I think that's where we are at. The temple destruction has happened, but the second coming of Christ is in the future. And here's how he describes it. But in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That's a an apocalyptic description. And if you look back in the Old Testament, that is how God is described as arriving to help Israel when they're fleeing from the Egyptians. And so I think this is describing God coming onto the scene and showing up onto the scene. And verses 26 and 27 spell that out in detail. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, you can see in verse 26, the Son of Man coming. That same language is used by Jesus in Mark 8. Mark 8, 38, to talk about the end of time and his second coming at the end of time. It's also language used in Daniel 7, verse 13, to describe God the Father giving the kingdom to the Son of Man when he comes in great glory. And so I think it's describing here the end of time. So he switched focus here. Now, when you think about the second coming, this is the promise for us that the story will be completed. 
everything will be brought to a conclusion. We've just read in verses 5 to 13 in particular just how broken our world is, right? Wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, natural disasters, and that'll be normal. Persecution of believers, that's going to be normal for you and I during this time period. And verses 24 to 27 are the promise and the hope for you and I that this will all come to an end one day. And Jesus will return to take his bride. He came to die in order to set things right. And he's promised to return again to earth and gather his people to him. And that is something to anticipate and that is something to hope in. I think of it like you'll you'll hear people when they talk about leadership, you know, the buck stops here. There's like always a last man where the decision falls back to, and this person has to make the decision. I think the doctrine of Christ's second coming is like that for us in our hope and in the midst of trials and difficulties. It's like there's always something to fall back on and to rest in. Things are so hard and so difficult at times, and they're frustrating, and the world around us is frustrating, but as believers, this is always the last thing that we can fall back on, and we can say, yeah, but Jesus is coming back. He's going to return in clouds with great glory, and no matter what happens in my life for these 70 or 80 or 90 years that I'm here, there will come a moment where he will return and he will set things right. And that is the ultimate fallback for us, emotionally and spiritually. You can always land there and you can always find hope and encouragement there. And I think that's what he's telling his disciples here. Look, no matter what happens, this is going to happen in the future. So you can bank on it. And that brings us to our third way to live. Trust God's word. And this is why we can anticipate Christ's return, because we do trust God's word. So I told you earlier, Jesus moves back and forth between the temple destruction and the second coming. And now I think in 28 to 31, he's telling them how to prepare for these events that are going to happen with the temple. Okay. He's telling them how they ought to live in light of this and what they should look for. And that's what I want you to notice here that's different in this section than in the last one we're going to look at. He tells them here to specifically look for things and look for signs. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, what things? The things of verses 5 to 23, when you see these things taking place, you know that it or he is near at the very gates. It's not talking about Christ there. It's talking about this, I think, the abomination there that's going to happen, the destruction of the temple. So I think he's telling them here, look, you can know when this is going to take place. You ought to be looking for this and anticipating these signs. Look for the signs of coming destruction. Be alert to what's happening around you so you can be prepared. Now, verses 30 and 31. Truly, I say to you, this generation, which generation? I think the disciples, the ones that are alive with him at that time. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words 
will not pass away. And the reason you can trust that these things are going to happen and you will see them within your own lifetime, the destruction of the temple, not the second coming, the reason is because of my words, because I promise things and they happen and you can bank on my words being true. And if you think about it, this is an incredible encouragement to us, even more so than to the disciples, because we've seen his words come true. If this is really about the destruction of the temple, then you and I have actually seen that take place. These promises have been fulfilled 2,000 years ago. We've seen it take place, and so we can bank on his words about the second coming coming true. All the words that he has spoken will come true And we can bank on that. So trust in his words. Live your life based on his words. And that brings us to our last way to live. And this is the one, I think, that really puts some weight on you and I. Because this is about the second coming. And I think you can see that again here. He flips back, and now he's talking about the second coming. But concerning that day or that hour. And look how his language is different here, right? In verse 28, he told you, you know that summer is near, but look what he says here. No one knows. It's completely different language. It's a completely different approach because I think he's talking about two different things, two different events, totally different. For the temple, he told them, look, there are certain things you're going to see that you know it's going to happen, but the second coming, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, and lest you think he's only talking about the day or the hour, but we can sort of know the general time frame when it's going to happen. Look what he says in verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Listen, we don't know. We just don't know when it's going to happen. So those are entirely different approaches to these two different events. When it comes to the second coming, sometimes it's not helpful to try to look at current events and read those back into Scripture. Because I think it can distract us from the real point of emphasis that Jesus is giving here, which is found in verses 34 to 37. Look what he says here. It is like the second coming. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, is for us included, stay awake. This is the situation for every believer from Christ's ascension to now. This parable, I guess you could say, that he describes here. He has left, he has gone on a journey, and he has told us, I will return, I will come back, and he has left us with work to do, and we are to stay awake and do our work. Look how many times in here he repeats that command. I mean, check this out. Verse 33, he says, keep awake, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 34, It's like a man who goes on a journey. At the end of that verse, he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. (laughs) Verse 36 is a warning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. That's the flip side of it. 
And then verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, right? I mean, you can, you can see what the emphasis is here. You don't know when it's going to happen, so stay awake. Be alert. Stay awake. He's not talking about knowing the exact details of when Christ will return or when the master will get back because we just don't know. But what he means by this is that we should be anticipating his return. Now, don't hear me saying that you don't think about it and you block it out of your brain and your mind and you don't worry about it because that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, man, you anticipate his return. You are excited about it. You think about it. And staying awake means I am living and ordering my life in such a way that I am ready for his return. I'm looking forward to it. I'm pumped about it. (laughs) This is the same command that Jesus gives several other places in Scripture. And let me share some of these with you to help you understand what he means by stay stay awake. I'm struggling with words this morning. Play, pray, awake, awake. This same command is given in Mark 14, 35, which is where Jesus is in the garden with the disciples and he tells the disciples to stay awake lest they enter into temptation. There's a vigilance that they need to have because temptation is on the door waiting to get in. So you got to stay awake. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells believers to stay awake and act like men. Do your job, fulfill your ministry, be faithful in your duty. 1 Peter 5.8, you know this one. We're told to be sober and to be alert because the devil is a roaring lion and he's roaming about seeking whom he can devour. So, man, don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Be ready. And so I think all of those with this command that we see here in Mark 13, be alert, be awake, all of those sort of fill out this picture for you and I of us being alert ethically, spiritually, and morally. We're ready to go. We're doing our work. And the world that we live in wants to divert our attention from the second coming of Christ, right? The world we live in wants to divert us or worse, wants us to not even think about it and not even consider it and not have our hope in the second coming. The world wants us to believe that the master has gone on a journey and he's not really coming back. I mean, it's been such a long time, a couple thousand years, he's not really coming back. You don't even need to worry about it. Live how you want to right now because this is all you have. That's the focus of our world. But if what Jesus is saying here is true and we are to stay awake, he will return and we must be ready for him because he will return and judge and he will return and will enter into eternal fellowship with him. We have to stay awake spiritually because of the end of the story, because it will be brought to conclusion. And that's what Jesus is saying here. So what does this mean? It means you are alert to the preparation that you need for Christ's return. It means we are passionate about knowing him and cultivating holiness in the meantime. It means that you and I are engaged in church life and ministering to others That's not a waste of our time. That's one of the things we should be devoting our time to in preparation for the Lord's return because he's coming to get his bride. And we want the bride to be ready for him. 
means we are taking the gospel to the world around us because Jesus will come back and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And that's reality. And that's what's going to happen. And I think it means staying awake means we find our joy and our hope. We are alert. We are excited. Even when life is incredibly difficult, this becomes a source of strength and of joy for us. And we are alert. We are focused on the end so that it impacts our joy and our hope now in the present. Hope in Christ's return is a real and a powerful motivator for living life today. So, that was a lot of verses to get through. And what I want you to hear this morning is sometimes we, we treat eschatology, the study of last things, we treat it like, like a, a family heirloom that we sort of put in the, the attic or in the closet, and it's really intricate and detailed, and we, we pull it out to show people and maybe to talk about a little bit, and then we put it back in. But it really becomes this sort of oddity that we don't, we don't use on a regular basis. And it doesn't impact anything else in our life. And it's not sitting out in our house day to day. One author said that every Christian doctrine, everything else in Scripture is infused with eschatological electricity. Because everything anticipates the end and looks forward to this moment when Jesus will come back in the clouds and take us to be with him forever. Everything anticipates that. And so instead of a family heirloom that we sort of put to the side and keep in the closet, let's treat eschatology like the electricity that gives power to everything in the house. We're always seeing everything through this lens, and it rejuvenates and gives energy and animates every area of my spiritual life, because I think that's how Jesus intends it to be. And that's why he says, stay awake so much here. So a firm belief in Christ's second coming and anticipation of his return should keep us sober, alert, and ready for every good work in the present. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to not think about your return. Even this time of year where we celebrate your first coming, it's easy to not think about your second coming. It's easy to not think about the future. And it's easy to not live today in light of the fact that you will return. But I pray that you would help us to have every area of life empowered and animated by the electricity that you will return, that you're coming back. And that's true and that's real. That's more real than this pulpit that I'm touching right now. It's going to happen and help us to be ready. We don't know when. We don't know all the details of what it's going to look like, but we want to be excited and we want to anticipate that day. So fill us with hope, fill us with joy even today as we celebrate your first coming to know that your first coming was so that you can come back a second time and so that we will be with you forever. And I pray that that would dictate our lives this week in holiness and righteousness and love and hope and joy. Thank you for this word from Mark 13. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.